Do you remember the last time you truly played, like as a kid, at a playground? I bet you didn't even realize that the last time you played at a playground would be the last time you played at a playground. If you feel guilty about having fun or doing literally anything that doesn't bring you money or potential money, then this conversation is for you. In today's episode of Learning How to Live, we learn how to play with Jeff Harry professional play expert who goes into the offices of some of the greatest places to work to teach us how to play. Yeah, that's a real job. We explore why it's so hard for us to play in today's environment, where the toxicity is really coming from in the workplace, and some techniques to find your zone of genius. Spoiler alert, finding fun might not be in the high-intensity adventurous way you think it's coming from. Let's get into it. Sit back, relax, and press play. Okay. So Jeff, I met you at a storytelling festival in Toronto, but over Zoom. And then I learned that you literally help adults learn how to play, which is kind of a weird concept since mm. you would have thought we would have learned how to play in our childhood. Right. But I think we spent a lot of time trying to grow up. So tell me what your definition of play is and how do you integrate that into adult life, I guess, today. Ooh, I love that question. So I define play as any joyful act where you forget about time. It's you, You're not focused on the past. You aren't uh, driven by the future. You're really fully present in the moment. You actually are like in flow. You're embracing your like zone of genius. And really, you don't even recognize what else is going on because you're so fully involved. And play can look like a variety of things for it for because people are like oh well you know is it hula hooping is it you know basketball is it no it's any action that any joyful action where you forget about time so that's different for every single person so and if you think about it your most enjoyable moments in your life your are fun joy play moments and that is when you are fully in play and i just want to help people get back there I think that's interesting because, yeah, I remember if you are having fun, I guess it's the, the saying, right? Time flies when you're having fun. But when you say the flow state, I usually think that in an entrepreneurial space or workspace, when it's like, when are you mostly in flow when you forget where time goes and you're in this like really productive space? Mm -hmm. So how does play go into the workspace and how do you get that same feeling of, oh, my God, I'm so just zoned in into whatever yeah. thing I'm doing and then I just don't even realize that I'm working per se. Yeah, when you actually are in flow or in play, right, you're five times more productive. You're 500% more productive. So for us to actually help staff or help people get into that, you really have to identify what their zone of genius is, right? We, you know, Gay Hendricks talks a lot about this, how you have your zone of incompetence, things you're not good at, zone of competence, things you're like average at. Zone of excellence, which most of us spend our time in, things we're really good at and we like praise for it, right? But your zone of genius is the, is the work you would do even if you weren't getting paid to do that work. So how do we help people do more of that type of work? Because even if they just do 10 to 20 more minutes of that work, the work where they just love to do it for the sake of just doing it because that's who they are that has a ripple effect on the rest of their work. So they actually are in flow with even the most monotonous tasks because they got to play to begin their day. So when I'm working with a lot of organizations, it's about that. It's just like, you want them to be more creative and more innovative and think outside the box first, leave the box, right? Like stop putting people in meeting rooms that are a box. Um, but then second, find out what their zone of genius is. What is the work where they forget about time? How does one find where that zone of genius is? Because I think people want their zone of genius to be something in their mind and actually isn't their zone of genius. And then mm. they might be upset that it's not that. Or do they need to keep practicing until that becomes their zone of genius? And I think that goes against their flow. And I think a lot of it is accepting like who you really are. But how, do, how does one find that? Zone genius. Yeah, so that is a fascinating <laughs> experience. Um, so I I have a technique that I suggest to people. I have two techniques. You know, let's just get into them. Um, so the first one I learned this partly from a play mentor of mine, Gwen Gordon, who would talk about how 
you can't play when you're in an anxiety ridden state. You can't play when you're angry. You can't play when you're sad. So you have to actually identify what actually soothes you in a healthy way, right? Because I think a lot of times we look at soothing techniques and we're like, the ways in which I celebrate are the same ways in which I, when I'm feeling bad, I also do those same things. So it's like, oh, when I'm excited, I want to celebrate myself, I go shopping. Okay, well, when I'm sad, I also go binge shopping. Like, so you got to identify like, healthy soothing techniques you know is it taking a shower is it going for a walk is it dancing in costume is it traveling to another place on earth and living there you know like what is it that soothes you actually calms you down right so once you identify that then i challenge people to do this which is really hard for most adults and that is to get bored and what do I mean by get bored? I mean, stop binge watching Netflix, stop looking at social media, stop looking at email. And I'm not talking about forever. I'm talking about like 10 to 20 minutes a day, right? And you're like, I don't have that much time. And you're like, you're on your phone five hours a day. You can find 10 minutes and just allow yourself to actually feel bored the way in which you were bored as a kid, because that's when you got your most nervous, excited ideas, your most mischievous ideas. And when you allow yourself to get bored, all of a sudden these nerve-sided ideas will pop up. These ideas that make you nervous and excited. Hey, I want to travel to another country. Hey, I want to start a podcast. Hey, I want to create a video. Hey, I want to write this article. Hey, I want to email that person I've been wanting to email for six months. And when you follow that curiosity and, and do that nerve-sided idea, regardless of whatever happens, regardless if that person emails you back or not, right? Just you jumping into that pool of uncertainty, that jumping to that pool of fear, you start to realize what fear is. It's just false evidence appearing real. And then you're like, oh, that's not scary. So I can do more of that. So the more you're willing to just pursue your nerve-sided ideas, that's when you start to fall in flow. And I think a lot of times we are just like, okay, I want to do the thing that makes me happy, but I'm not willing to experiment. And it's just like, no, we need to actually try out many things. And as you do them, you'll realize which ones you actually vibe with and which ones you don't. Wow, that's so interesting. I I didn't look at play like that. I didn't look at the calming side of things. That really makes me think of meditation. Mm -hmm. And that is truly what you are in meditation. Like you're bored. You are yep. just there literally doing nothing. There's nothing to do but be there and I think that's the yeah. hardest thing because we're so used to that distraction but when you talk about fear and trying something new people want to be happy and they want to attain that feeling but we don't realize that there's work to reach that happiness mm -hmm. so where do you think that mentality breaks down or where do we Ooh. where are we misguided <laughs> in understanding where happiness comes from oh, oh, okay 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 um <laughs> so no I get excited about this because uh you know we don't give ourselves enough credit for even playing the amount that we play. A lot of adults just don't play anymore, right? There was a moment when you went to the playground and that was the last time you went, you know, not counting taking your kids. And you didn't know that was the last time you were going to go, right? But we have to look back as to why we don't play that much, right? And think about it. When you were a kid, what were you told to do? I think it's 19,000. I have to check this. But by the time you reach the age of 18, you've heard the word no at least 19,000 times, right? And you've heard the word yes like a few thousand times, right? And that's dependent. That's whether you had a healthy, you know, family, right? You might have heard even more. So on top of all those no's, then you go to school where everyone tells you to raise your hand, follow the rules, all this stuff. And then you're bombarded by adults always being like, what do you want to do when you grow up? You know, and it's because they don't have a, you know, good lives. So they're asking kids like, give me a new idea. Right. So you're constantly being berated about what you need to do. And then you get to your teenage years and you're inundated with more information in a day than most people received in the 1800s in their entire lifetime. Right. And what is all that information telling you? You're not enough. Stop being weird. Buy stuff. And then you'll be happy right? All that. So you're fighting all that. It, it's such a revolution to play, right? It's such a revolution to be weird and do something that people are like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Because also what is play? Play is letting go of results. You're just doing something because it actually brings you a certain level of joy, but just letting go of like, 
whether that benefits me or not, right? And when you're able to actually give yourself the permission and the grace to be like, oh, I really haven't played in a while, but how would I want to play? How would I want to show up? When you actually do that for yourself, that is when you start to free up your ability to actually tap into your inner child again. Yeah. And I think there's a little bit of a problem when people are like, oh, if you don't know what your passion is, focus on your purpose first. Or it, there's a, a, re a reason for everything that you do. And I used to play by that rule as well. It's like, if this isn't going to make me money or this isn't going to get mm -hmm. progress or something, then there's no point in me doing it. I'm not going right. to do it. And then all of a sudden I was like, but art, that is something that there's yeah. no purpose to. Yeah. It just is in itself and there's massive respect for it. Right. So why do we attribute so much respect to the people that actually finally do choose to play? And why do we not also feel like, hey, I can do that too. Like I, I feel like, you know, even me living in Mexico, people are like, oh my God, you had the courage to just leave, to escape. You got out of the matrix, you unplugged, you did this. And it's like, yeah, but shouldn't this be encouragement for you to do the same rather than just watching me from the sidelines and saying like, oh, wow, congratulations. You're the, you're the person that plays. I, I can't leave my secure life the way that it exists mm. now. I'm not going to allow myself to play. I am just not one of the lucky ones. So I guess yep. I'll just live vicariously through you. Yep. The amount of people that I coach that have golden handcuffs, woo wee! You know, they have everything, but they don't have everything, right? And I always mention like Michael Phelps, right? Like 28 gold medals, and, and then he went right into depression right afterwards. So, like, Olympians actually suffer from the highest cases of depression because they don't have something to pursue next, right? And play is about like no results. So, I think the propaganda of everything that we have watched, whether that's social media or Netflix or whatever it is, makes it feel as if it's too scary to step into the arena. Like what you just did, traveling to another country and starting a brand new life is something only someone else can do on TV. Oh, well, Amanda can do it because that's Amanda's life. I could never do that with my family, right? And I'm about to go to a conference called World Domination Summit where it was, it's just a bunch of people that were like, uh, 10 years ago, were like, F the nine to five. I'm going to take my family on a boat and we're going to live on a boat. We're going to do a bunch of weird things, you know, and just being around that, like, and real you, for me to find that community was so hard, right? If you're living in the suburbs, you know, or like, even if you're like living in the city, and you're surrounded by people like, let's say you're in San Francisco and you're surrounded by just everyone doing tech. You just assume everyone is doing that. So you promoting, you know, your platform and speaking more on like podcasts and just showing up in the world is maybe the only person that they know doing something crazy. And the more you describe it in a normal context the more I'm willing to actually be like, is that possible? No, it can't be possible. Well, I could try it for like a week or maybe a month. And then all of a sudden they're like, it's not that hard, right? And I think the other thing, and this is what I was going to go back to earlier about how you can also play more. Another way you can play more is you can actually reach out to three to five of your closest friends. This is a play experiment I do um, a lot with uh, people that I coach. And um I ask them, ask these two questions to their friends. What value do I bring to your life? Like, why are we friends? Like, what do I do for you? Because I think a lot of times we don't know the impact we have on people's lives. And then the second question I ask them is like, when have you seen me come most alive? And that's based off the Howard Thurman quote, right? Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is more people to come alive, right? So another way of asking that question is when have you seen me come most alive is when have you seen me most creative, most playful, most myself, right? So those two questions, what value do I bring to your life? And when have you seen me come most alive? And when you ask that of like three to five different people, whoo, and the, the showering of love and appreciation, and then you're like, is that really what I do for you? I didn't even know that. Then that's another way in which now someone is reminding you, this is how you used to play. And then you can go to those same friends and be like, all right, can you help me as my play accountability partner to play more in these ways? 
Wow. I love that. I think I actually asked very similar questions um, when I was trying to restructure my life as usual mm. and go into a new direction. And I was like, what value do I offer you? And I disagreed with what people were telling me. Ooh. And maybe I was just too afraid to step into that big of a role. Mm. So at the same time, I understand and appreciate that kind of love that you'll get from these people. Yeah. But what if someone's like, you know, you're like a really entrepreneurial person, let's say. And I just don't want to run businesses anymore. Like I'm sick of it. Yeah. I'm burnt out. I just don't want to. And I'm, I'm glad that I'm your inspiration source for this. But what if I wanted to recreate myself? What would you suggest to someone that's like, you know what? I am open. I'm ready to play. I'm ready to try and do something else. How does one find their own version of what play looks like to them? Well, so there's two questions in there. Let me answer, try to answer the first one. The first one, if someone says something to you that they value that you don't anymore, mm -hmm. then your relationship with that person is different. That's from, true. So they may not understand you, right? So that's why you ask multiple people, right? Because basically when you're saying, what value do I bring to your life? Really what you're saying is, do you see me? Right. Let's get all avatar-esque in this and be like, do you <laughs> yeah. see me? Like, and some people may not, right? Some people may mm -hmm. see the persona, right? Or the character or the influence, you know, aspect of you, but not you. So maybe they just don't know you anymore, right? And that's why then I would recommend you ask more people, you know, and, and really do see it. Um, but then the second part of like, okay, well, then how do I find it? We're constantly finding it. So what used to be your zone of genius now becomes your zone of excellence. There are times when you were like, hey, you know, I, I love being an entrepreneur. Oh, this is my flow state. And then at some point you're like, I'm done with that hustle culture. I'm done with that. So your zone of genius has now evolved into something else. So then the whole idea is not like, okay, now I got to find the next one. I got to find the zone of genius. No, it's more of like now I'm on a new journey to explore something new about myself. And that's the excitement, the adventure of finding it. And I think we get so fixated on the result that, that we don't enjoy the ride. We don't enjoy the process, right? And what is expectation? Expectations are the thief of joy. And the more we're so fixated on expectations, we miss out on the journey, which is frankly what life is, right? And I think we forget that a lot of times. So enjoy the process of not knowing that's the exciting part right now right i don't know Ooh, i don't know either oh well, well i guess we just don't know together so let's go on an adventure together and figure it out i love that i think that's a really important thing to recognize like maybe some people don't see you the way that you see yourself and then you have to go on that journey and maybe you're the one holding back from showing mm. people who you are right i think that was something i was definitely dealing with but I was afraid to go through that journey because I was afraid of who I would be yeah. because all of these people liked this version of me, whichever mask I was wearing at this time. If I show them another me, then maybe I might have to break those relationships. Yeah. Of course, maybe I'll get rejected. Yeah. So how does one gain the courage to do that? And how do you get other people to, to think differently about themselves and be like, you know what? Actually, I am curious about discovering myself. Because most of the time, people just don't even want to face those demons, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can I swear on this podcast? Of course. Yeah. Okay. So I saw this meme recently, and I think I made a TikTok video about it. I haven't posted it yet. But um, it basically was just like, it showed this person, this cartoon drawing, and the person was like, nobody gives a shit. You know, and they're all sad and lonely and being like, just nobody gives a shit. Like, nobody cares about me. Nobody cares about me. Right. And then underneath it showed another cartoon and they're celebrating and they're like, nobody gives a shit. Nobody <laughs> gives a shit. No one's paying attention. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I think we don't realize how much no one is paying attention to what we're doing. They have their own problems. They're doing their own thing. You've seen it probably at clubs and bars where everyone's like, is everyone looking at me? No, because they're looking at themselves. Like everyone is so involved in themselves that, yeah, like I was, t I was telling this to a friend of mine that was writing a book and I was just like, and she was having like writer's block and I go, you know, don't take this the wrong way, but most people in the world are never going to read your book. 
And she goes, what do you oh mean? And I was God. just like, <laughs> and I was like, most people are never going to read your book. And she goes, what are you talking about? And I was like, let's say you have a best-selling book, right? Best-selling books sell between like 10 to 50,000 copies, maybe a hundred thousand copies if you're lucky. That's a, that's still a lot of people. And also, you know, 7 billion other people are not going to read your book. So at the same time, and this is really hard to actually embrace because it's, it's counter. It's two different things at the same. At the same time, you should really care to be fully present as you're writing your book, because the fifty to one hundred thousand people that do read it might change their life, and also recognize that this is much bigger than you, and that you need to let go of that because a lot of people will never be impacted by this. And when you can hold both truths, right? When you can be both, when you recognize the beauty and sadness, right? There's there's a beauty in being sad, but also a joy in being sad. Like when you recognize many different emotions at the same time, that's what living is, right? This idea that you can hold space for all of it. Um, and I think we don't let ourselves do that so much because we're like, well, I got to be happy now, or I got to be joyful. Okay, now I got to be angry. And it's just like, no, let all the emotions in because that is where the living is. And maybe that's where the courage comes from is being okay with whatever feeling I'm feeling and being like, oh, I'm sad right now and I, I should be producing. No, just be sad. Just allow yourself to be sad. And when that passes, then start creating again. But, you know, but give yourself the grace and compassion to show up however you want to show up on a given day instead of feeling like, I need to be toxic positive all the time, you know? Mm, yeah. Toxic positive is a huge issue, especially in the workspace, right? When everyone just keeps re-encouraging that same positivity. And I think that there's also a problem, like there's only one way to have fun in yeah. an adult workplace way, which is it's beneficial for your health or it's a team building experience or you get something, there's a KPI attached to it oh. and then you're allowed to have this fun. And it's like oh. this positive enforced fun. Yeah. So I hate forced fun. I hate it. I hate it. I did team building for 10 years. I don't like it, mm -hmm. frankly. I think it's contrived. I think it's forced. I think if you, if Samantha and Chad hate each other and then you put them in a skate room together, they're still going to hate each other. <laughs> they might even hate each other more. So when, when I describe bringing play to work, I'm not about like, all right, everyone, let's have some fun here. No, what I like to do is I actually like to tackle really difficult issues, but I use play to do it. So, oh, let's have a difficult conversation. We're going to use play to do it. Oh, let's deal with this toxic person. Let's use play in order to do it. So I use play as a tool. But when I go into a lot of companies and they're like, we got to make people have fun here. It's just like, no, you've already missed the point. The point is, is your job is to create the playground where people feel comfortable enough to play and then let them play on their own time, right? This is not mm. for you to force people to play on your time. Play is a choice. That's what makes play so lovely. When you used to play at recess, you had a choice of whether you wanted to go play dodgeball or not. Some people are like, I don't want to get hit in the head. So, you know, you get to choose whether to play. So the, the manager's job is to create the safe space, the playground for people to play, meaning like, oh, I've created a psychologically safe enough place that my staff can fail, right? Oh, I've created a psychologically safe space that my staff can be silly, you know, or they, you know, uh, Zappos, for example, did a really great job of being like, hey, you want to wear a costume to come to work? Fine, great, do you. And then, and then, and then other people, when they first join, Zappos is like, if you don't like our culture after a month, we'll pay you three grand to leave. That's another way wow. in which you're, yeah, exactly. Because they're just like, oh, if you're, this is not your, because we're silly and ridiculous and weird here. And we'll pay you if you this to leave if you don't want to be down with this. And that, again, is creating a certain, you know, culture of safety, right? Dan Price, when he, uh, from Gravity Payments, you know, set the minimum wage at 70K a year, right? And everyone like laughed at him back in 2015. He didn't have to lay off any of his staff in 2020 because everyone was willing to take a pay cut 
because he went above and beyond for them during that time. And one of his KPIs, one of his metrics of success is how many of my staff are having kids and staying with the organization. Like, so again, creating a safe space and celebrating the holistic person, the whole person, as opposed to just what can I get out of my staff? Mm, I know. Isn't that weird that even the play part is still geared to performance Mm -hmm. in the workspace? Mm -hmm. And I remember, I think I've been fired from like a hundred or more jobs. And usually it's within the first three months because I don't fit the culture. And it's because it's a forced culture. And if I am too much outside of the furniture of what it looks like, then I got to go. And I would always think like, wow, am I causing such a commotion that you have to fire me versus like Sally over there who literally just blends into the furniture, who doesn't do anything, has no value into the workplace, at least just fits in, you know? And it, it started to make me question, like, how do you find a comfortable space? What is this psychological safety that you're talking about? Yes. So wait, before I answer that question, think about why you were fired, right? Mm -hmm. You were a threat. I was a threat. To the system, right? Like you simply leaving was probably the best thing for that organization because if you had stayed, you probably would have gotten more people to leave, right? Oh yeah. There's an inspiration. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I I try to unionize Toys R Us. I used to work (laughs) at their flagship store in Times Square with a T-Rex and I tried to unionize them and they saw me as a threat because they were like, what are you doing? Like, what do you mean we have to treat people with more humanity? What do you mean we can't lay off like a hundred people at a time? Right. Why is that? You know? So yeah. So that firing in many ways was almost a compliment to you. Oh, a hundred percent. took me a while to realize that, but I remember just as a kid, um, I created a riot in my kindergarten. I decided it wasn't nap time yet. We're not done with playtime. <laughs> and they had to call my mom and make her come and collect me because awesome. I was a threat, of course. So That's genius because you're <laughs> like, why does everyone have to nap at the same time, right? I'm not sleepy. I'm not tired. Are you sleepy? You know, <laughs> that you just cause the... And, and I think we forget... Yeah, I think we just forget what that feeling is like, right? Uh, sometimes I ask people, what did you love to do as a kid? Um, we run this workshop called Your Future is Where Your Fun Is, my, uh, my colleague Lauren Yee and I. And we ask people, what do you love to do as a kid? Um, and I love to play board games. I love to combine them all together and make this epic game. My sisters hated playing, but I love playing it. But what I loved about it was it, um, I recognized the play values underneath it. Oh, it created experience. Oh, it... it uh, tapped into my creativity. Oh, it provided connection. Oh, it was it was a really fond memory. So all of my work ties into my play value. So a lot of times I ask people, you know, what did they love to do as a kid? Or if they didn't really enjoy playing as a kid, what did they love? When was the last time they played and they had so much joy? And when you actually think of what the values are underneath that, that is where your flow state exists, right? That's where you can actually find that that answer that you're looking for now tying back to the question you had earlier of like how do you find that psychologically safe workspace um you have to play in many different workspaces in order to do that you have to play in the interviews you have to be weird in the interviews you have to be yourself in the interviews and be and allow yourself to not get that job just because like it might look good on your resume and really be weird and see if you can find your weirdness back, right? Because weird people want to find weird people, right? Let's just be honest. But mm-hmm. a lot of times we don't know you're weird. And one of the reasons why I hate the suburbs, and I grew up in the suburbs, so I, I crap on it all the time, is because the suburbs celebrate normalcy. They celebrate crushing anything unique about yourself and you're weird. A lot of weird people in the suburbs not allowed to share it in the city, or at least where I live in Oakland, so many weird people, they share it all the time. So how do you find, how do you find weird people? You have to allow yourself to be more weird. Mm, Interesting. I remember I used to pride myself on getting jobs. I 
didn't care that I would get fired because I would always have the confidence that I'd get another job. Mm. But the jobs that I was able to keep, I totally ruined. Like all of the interviews I would have, they would ask me questions and I would totally bomb them all. Like I didn't know the answer. Remember this one time I applied to be um, a bartender. Why do you want to be a bartender? And they they said, said, I don't know. I'm friendly. I think it's a fun gig. Like whatever. I was also 20 something. Mm -hmm. It just seemed like a normal thing to do. Then they said, okay, cool. Can you just name five whiskeys? And I said, I don't even know what a whiskey is. Like at this time, I didn't know. I couldn't drink yet. And then they were like, can you name five gins? And I was like, I, the same answer. I don't know. I don't know any of the things, but I can learn. I'm eager to learn and I'm friendly mm-hmm. and whatever. And they're like, name one vodka. And I was like, I, I still can't answer this question for you. I don't drink. I have no idea. And I left like thinking this was totally terrible, you know? And at the same night, they they called me back and they're like, hey, do you want to start your first shift? Oh, you know, wow. because at least... I was honest. And that's why yeah. it's hard for me to find the balance because I'll get into the job based on qual- like by skill set, yeah. persistence, let's yeah. say, um, confidence, um, and just willingness to learn, I yeah. think. So there is this willingness to be coached, to be learned, to join this group. And then you get into it and then you're, you just don't fit yeah. the expectation of that culture, which sucks because maybe you would be fantastic in this role mm. and in this enterprise but you can't, you can't stay there, you know? So I think, I think that's the biggest challenge because then you lose a lot of great talent that would have been great in that space, except they, they're just not invited or they don't feel comfortable. Well, either they're not invited or the space is not playful, right? Alex Johnson says, you know, the future's where people are having the most fun. And there are a lot of places that used to be fun that are not fun anymore. Amazon, when he started off in 98, Jeff Bezos wasn't an a-hole, right? It, and, and Amazon was the place to be for a lot of tech heads because they were solving the most interesting problems. That disappeared later on, and a lot of the awesome talent that he had just bounced. So I think for a lot of recruiters, as well as like hiring managers, as well as like team leaders, anyone that's like listening to that, I think figuring out how you can allow someone to, and I hate this because it's so cliche, like be your authentic self, right? But how do you allow your staff to show up more fully and not um, judge themselves, right? Not hide that part of them. I think Marcus Buckingham refers to it as like allowing people to show their spikes and their weirdness because that's the bigger value that you get. And the more what we do in companies now is we like to be like, yeah, this person fits a role because they match up like everyone else. And then you just have a bunch of yes people. And it's like, no wonder you're not being innovative. You probably have a bunch of weird people at the table that have been told this is not the place to play. This is not the place to be yourself. This is a place for you to get a paycheck. And that's what they've been doing. And if you really want to tap mm-hmm. into them being innovative and creative and, and disruptive and all the things that you want, you need to let go of trying to control the situation so much and allow people to be their weird, strange, playful selves. Yeah. I think the biggest problem is I hear a lot of people, I have never heard a person say, I have so much fun at work or I can't yeah. wait to go to work and have fun yeah. or I love going to work. It's like, I feel grateful for being at work. Or I, I'm grateful for a job. You know, it is this this forced gratefulness yep. Yep. that you actually don't even feel grateful about. You're like, how do I be grateful for something that I hate going yep. to? Yep. And and I just don't enjoy any aspect of it at all, you know? Yeah. And there's even a TikTok going around now that I want to make an audio part for, but um, where this guy is just like, why do we have to pay to live on earth? Like, I just right? don't understand that we have to pay to live, why can't I just live, you know? And I think a lot of people during the pandemic realized like a lot of work is just dumb. It's just stupid. Like commuting is dumb. Like it's such a waste. I think people waste nine years of their life commuting. And they've also found this one uh, anthropologist found um, and wrote a book about it called Bullshit Jobs. He found that like, I think he said 45% of jobs right now in America, if you got rid of them tomorrow, Nothing would change, right? Just because they don't really add value at all. If anything, they're, they just exist to, you know, keep people busy. 
And mm-hmm. it really is so sad because I rem- remember reading something around John Maynard Keynes back in like the 19, like 30s or 40s was writing about what the economy is going to look like in the 70s and 80s. And he says, be like, listen, so much stuff is going to be automated that we're only going to be working 10 to 15 hours a week. Like that's just what he assumed what was going to happen. But then because of capitalism and and this whole propaganda in the 50s that you need to be working and you need to be working hard and 40, 50 hours a week so you can afford that that new vacuum cleaner and that new refrigerator as you move into your suburban home, that whole propaganda got us to like get back to the mall and be like, I got to work in order to go to the mall so I can buy more crap, you know, and then and now we're working more. And it's just like, we really don't need to be working this, this much. And then all of that productivity that we're doing, none of that money is coming to us. That's going to a few people at the top. So it's so sad that we're working more on jobs that don't matter and having less time to actually tap into our own play. That no wonder we're so lost because we're so exhausted when we get home that the only thing we want to do is binge watch Netflix because that's the only thing that's going to get me to go to work the next day. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to, I had to wait until my life exploded until I gave myself the permission to have fun and play. And even when I was supposed to play, I still found a way to strategize on how I'd make money by playing. And then I had to check myself and realize, no, look, like just play there is no gain to this. Just learn about yourself and play. What was your journey in learning how to integrate play into your life? Did you have a big explosive moment where you were like, what am I doing? This makes no sense to me. Or did you just start having fun and realize like, oh my God, I could save lives like this. Like yeah. what was the journey for you? So the Batman origin story, I'll tell you the <laughs> short version. So I saw the movie Big with Tom Hanks as a kid. And in that movie, you know, he wishes he was an adult. And then he dances on a piano and then he gets a job being a toy designer. And I was like, that's a job. And I was in third grade when I saw (laughs) that. So I started writing toy companies in third grade. And I just did not stop until I got into the toy industry like 20 years later. And I don't know if you've ever gotten exactly what you've always wanted and then been so disappointed Mm -hmm. when you arrive, right? But I was just like, I got in the toy industry and I was just like, there are no toys, no fun, no high fives, you know, no kids. Like I was surrounded by cubicle walls. Like, why is there carpet on the walls? Like, this is just bothering me. That, <laughs> that like this looks more like an insane asylum than a place of fun, right? So, and it was such a toxic work environment. Um, so I remember leaving that, leaving New York, moving to the Bay Area. And then finding a job on Craigslist that taught kids engineering with Lego. They basically were just playing with Lego for a living. And I was like, wait a minute, that's a job? You can do that? And it was only seven dudes at the time doing it. And I joined it and I just was just like, oh, I'm just going to play. I get paid nothing. It's like $150 a week. It was like a joke of job, maybe 200, whatever. Um, But I was like, I'm going to make this a thing. And we were able to make it a thing and we grew it into the largest Lego inspired STEM organization in the U S but we did it all by playing. We had no idea what we were doing. We picked cities. We thought were fun. We picked people we thought were fun and we just experimented and we failed all the time. And we did a lot of things that were like, Oh my gosh, what are we doing? But we just kept messing around and we got, it got so large that at some point Silicon Valley started paying attention to us and was like, Hey, do you do team building events? Hey, do you do, you know, special events with Lego? And we're like, yeah, of course we do. We do all that. No, we didn't, but we just were experimenting. We just said yes to anything and did anything that we thought was fun. And I ended up then doing a decade long of team building events for like the top tech companies in the world. But then while I was at those companies, the Facebook, the Googles, the Adobe's, all that, I realized these are the top companies and they are not playing. Mm -hmm. These are the top companies and it doesn't feel like a psychologically safe workspace. So that's when I, I created rediscover your play because I was like, we got to tackle issues around like toxic masculinity and toxicity and how to have a hard conversation and how to tap into your like inner critic. All those issues need to be addressed. And I think I can do that through play and positive psychology. So like that was the pathway 
in order for me to find my own play. And I'm still finding my mm -hmm. own play each day. Things that I used to think were fun are not. And I need to find new things in order to reinvent myself over time. I love that you say um, that these are the best companies and they don't even know how to play. And I would imagine these like immensely talented people that are stuck in these spaces and they have immense pressure to succeed because they are in the greatest companies and they are responsible for whatever future thinking that they come up with and they probably feel super stuck. So yeah. has there been any discomfort? Because I'm assuming that there would be a lot of resistance oh, yeah. of like, I don't want to attend this event. This is a stupid event. I have a deadline yeah. yesterday. There's no way I'm going to this thing. Like, how do you get participation to even show up and, and results? Yeah. So I always point out before we play, right, or we try anything out, I point out the successes already, right? Look at Google's. Google used to have something called the 20% rule, where they would give their staff 20% of their time to pursue whatever they wanted, as long as it benefited Google. And what led from that? Remember, they did this at the very beginning. AdSense came from that. Gmail came from that. Google Meet came from that. Google Maps came from that. Google Earth. Like all these innovative things, you know, built the foundation of Google came from play. And there's so many examples of that in every organization. Every organization I go to, I'm like, your organization started off as an experiment. It was just play. Oh my goodness, can we create a search engine to help people, right? Oh my goodness, can we order books online? It was just like an experiment. What happened? What happened to all of that, everyone, right? Like that is what, this is why this organization exists. And if we don't play this is this organization is going to be obsolete. So I start with that just to be like, this is the importance of it. All right. And let's talk about the science behind it. All right. Now let's actually get into the stuff. Right. And the stuff sometimes is something as simple as like, you know, let's say I'm running a workshop on dealing with your inner critic. A lot of times then we're just talking about, okay, what is that mean voice in your head? Let's talk about the science behind it, but then let's figure out various techniques where you can talk to your own inner critic quiet it down so that you can be more creative and more productive in a given day. Right. Mm -hmm. Or, Oh, let's help out. Okay. How many of your staff right now are doing their zone of genius? I don't even know what that is. Why don't we figure that out? And then we let's, once we identify it, okay, go to your manager and talk to them about, Ooh, how can I, I love talking to people. That's my zone of genius. What percentage of time do you currently do that? I only do that 15% of the time. How can we change that from 50 to 20%? That's only like an extra hour, two hours a week, but that could change someone's whole perspective on their work because now their, their manager actually cares about them and cares enough to be like, I see you, I hear you, and I'm going to put in the work to make sure that at least this job is more tolerable, right? And that work can suck less because I'm putting in the work to help you do the work that you love to do most. Those are the, mm -hmm. those are some of the things that I do. So how do you get, I guess, the, the decision makers the to, buy -in? to get the buy-in exactly? Because let's say those decision makers are the toxic ones and they want yeah. to keep a handle over the workspace and they don't want any changes and they want it to be the way that it is so that they can, you know, selfishly have their own gains. And yeah, you know, that's a fact. And that's half of the times why we don't get certain clients, right? So mm -hmm. how have you been able to address that? Because you have very clearly stated on the activities that you offer that combats, you know, toxicity in the workspace. Yep. Whereas when I ever worked in that space, it was like, I needed government buy-in to say like, mm -hmm. no, you must do this. We have to talk about social media policies. We have to talk about these things on safety and, and people's independent needs and free will and all these things, but it was like mandated. And then obviously yeah. I was walking in to a place that just was ready to kill me. You know what I mean? Yeah. So how did you get around that? And I think it's really genius that you did come around that with, with play. Well, I, so I do it in two ways. One way is I first just be like, so how's it working out for you? <laughs> right. Because how is it working out for you? People are leaving, right? There's the whole great mm -hmm. resignation. You know, your staff is disengaged. Average amount, what? 76% of staff right now are disengaged in the workplace. Actually, it's probably higher than that. But Gallup 
recognize it was that much. So it's just like you only have a fourth of your staff that is into their job. So how is that helping your bottom line? How are you? So I try to identify what is their pain point? What is their trigger, right? I want to get paid more money. Oh, I want to get promoted, right? Let's say you're talking to a toxic person. Well, none of that can happen using the method that you're currently using. And a lot of times when we go into an organization, we're not like, okay, Chad's toxic. Everyone go, hey, Chad. We don't do it so we don't do it so blatantly. What we do is we go, hey, toxicity exists here. So how do we set boundaries so that we don't get disrespected? How do we set boundaries so that we create a place that people actually want to go work in? And we're not attacking Chad, right? We're simply giving people more power and permission and bravery to set those boundaries so that Chad can't act up in a certain way. So that a lot of times that's my approach. My approach is like, okay, you want to get the most out of your staff. In order to get the most out of your staff, you need to create the playground and the psychologically safe space in order to do it. Here are a few steps to do this. And what will be the results? They'll stay longer. They'll be more productive and you'll make more money and you'll probably get the promotion you've been asking for. Do you want to do that? And then some people are like, no, no. I want to control everything. Okay, well, peace. Then, you know, you don't need me. Just keep doing what you're doing because you're going to get the exact same results you always had. And you're going to have that revolving door of people leaving every, you know, six months. And I tell companies this all the time to replace someone costs six to nine months of someone's salary. So if we're talking about someone that's like, you're paying them a hundred thousand dollars a year, that's 50 to $75,000 every time someone leaves. Do you, are you okay with that? Are you okay with just hemorrhaging money? So whenever like I, I talk to a lot of team leaders and they're always like, oh, we got to think of the new most innovative thing to do or the more disruptive thing or what's a new way in which we can bring in new revenue. And it's just like, address the toxicity. You address that, everything else helps, but you mm. need to be willing to it. You need to be brave enough to address that. And the way in which I ask them to address it as I go, I ask them to ask this question of themselves. What is the worst behavior you're currently tolerating? And why are you choosing to, to tolerate that behavior? Has there been that trend of like the same answer to that question? Or maybe top no, three answers? Just, or are they always different? They're, they're always different. But a lot of times it's just like, it's just always been this way. Chad has always been toxic, but he's a really, he produces a lot and he brings in a lot of revenue, right? There's that whole brilliant jerk syndrome where they're like, well, Chad brings in a million dollars a year. Well, also Chad got four people to quit last year. How much did that cost your bottom line? Oh, a half a million dollars. Okay. So Chad didn't bring in a million dollars, right? You know, mm -hmm. oh, Chad might cost you a lawsuit. Lawsuits average around $250,000 before settlement. Are you okay with that? So when you start to point out those things to be like, you know, you know, it's, it, it's just kind of like complacency. It's kind of like, yeah. this is like, you know, well, we've always done it this way. So this is what we're doing it. Or that person has come in and doesn't know that there's another option, right? They don't know that there's another reality that's possible. I think a lot of people just kind of give up, right? So the more you can actually give them hope, that, hey, if you're able to address this toxic person, either by letting them go or setting boundaries so they don't act that way, so much of your culture will change just simply addressing that one person. And it'll be more fun to come to work again. People are like, oh, okay, okay, I'm, I'm listening. I'll at least listen for a moment. Mm, okay. I think that's really interesting that it's both the complacency of like, it's always just been that way, the ignorance of... I have no idea how else to do it because it's always been that way. And, you know, it's really brave of you now to specifically target toxic masculinity, specifically mm -hmm. in the workspace, specifically um, toxic masculinity amongst leadership, right? Yeah. Which is a mostly male dominated space. I've worked in different spaces where it's, it's male dominated as a culture space, as a leadership space, like industry space, all of these varieties, but coming as a woman, it's very different than, per se for you coming through because then you're coming as like you're one of us you know mm -hmm. so you can you can get there closer 
what has the experience been like in terms of have you been able to get through in discussing toxic masculinity? Because with me, it's always just like, I'm here with a band of women and we're ready yeah. to, to yell and scream and shout. And that does nothing, right? It's just like, yeah. oh, great. The women are complaining again. Let's yeah. just quietly, you know, pretend that we're okay with this, you know, and then it goes back to normal. It goes back to the way things are. Yeah. Yeah. So many of the workshops that I do run, 80% of the people that attend them are women when I'm talking about toxic masculinity. So let's just not get that, mm -hmm. you know, like, yep. so that's just the reality. Right. But having said that, You'd be amazed how many men also don't like toxic masculinity either. It doesn't benefit them either. So when the people that are there that actually attend the workshops that I run or when I'm running for an organization, they will quietly tell me on the side, yes, I agree with you. I'm not able to speak up about this, but I do agree with you. And the more that I can actually talk about this, I'm like, no, you can actually talk about this because when I'm talking about toxic uh, masculinity, what I'm talking about is like, do you want that type of leadership? How's that type of leadership created a place that where you want to actually go to work? The reason why we hate work so much, the reason I believe the reason why we had the great resignation is because of toxic masculine leadership, right? Bullying people being forced to go back to work before there was a vaccine, um, you know, gaslighting, like, firing people or laying people off and then not giving them any information and then trying to hire them back later on. Like just so many, like so many Elon Musk, so many Jeff Bezos, so many, you know, Steve job techniques that made people being like, I hate work. No, you don't actually hate work. You hate how it's led right now. And we need to stop celebrating this type of leadership because you know, when you watch Elon Musk right now forcing people to go back to work, you know, he's just a bully, right? And he's just like, and and frankly, his staff is more productive when they were working at home, but he doesn't have control. And it's just, and we're really at a crossroads right now where I ask a lot of organizations, where do you want to go with your leadership? Do you want to continue that toxic route that led to the great resignation? Or do you want to embrace a more holistic type of leadership that embraces feminine traits, right? Play is feminine, right? You know, collaboration is feminine. Um, um, you know, letting go of results and focusing on process is feminine. All of these are really important for organizations right now. And we've leaned so far to uh, the masculine side of like results and crushing the competition and all this like hustle culture that people don't want to work there anymore. And if you really want people to work again, you really do need to find the balance between the divine feminine and the divine masculine. Hmm. Have you ever heard of this pickle experiment? It was done with uh, three-year-old kids. And then basically they would give an imaginary pickle to um, three-year-old boys and three-year-old girls. And the three-year-old girls naturally split the imaginary pickle into three so that everyone could have equal parts of the pickle. What do you think the boys did? Oh, they fought over it. They fought over it. Yeah. And then one of them had to, and this is interesting. It was the pseudo alpha, the guy who decided that he was beta Yeah, and, and announced himself as beta. And he said that, um, oh, actually, Mr. Alpha is going to have, have the pickle first. Then I will. And then number three will have it. And then he got number three to agree. So he was actually alpha because he was the one making the decision. But he, you know, so I think the always the second in command is someone to be concerned about or just to be to think about what right. their their actual um, intentions are, because the alpha just has to fill the role of alpha and maybe isn't ever really the alpha. And yeah. In, and, in many and and that's so interesting you say that because I remember doing an experiment a long time ago when I used to run these like Lego programs and we were building this Le Lego castle and all the girls wanted to work together and all the boys wanted to work together. And I was like, all right, you got X amount of time, build your castle wall, right? And what did the girls do? Work together. Oh, I need that piece. Oh, build this buttress. Oh, we got to figure this out. Their wall was like three feet tall. By the time like we ended it, the dudes had actually broken up their castle and made separate castles. 
and they were all like less than like six inches. Oh. It was just embarrassing. Oh my God. But, it, but, but tying <laughs> that to actual, and I do this in my toxic masculinity workshop, but tying that actual to results now, when you have more female directors and more uh, female executives, your company is more profitable. Like that's just a, that's just a given. And even though there's only 15% of women as CEOs in Fortune 500 companies, you know, 41 of them are in like the top 100 because they're utilizing a different approach that actually brings in feminine leadership traits. So it's just like, we have to recognize like, that's what we're missing. And if the goal at the end of the day is to make more money, to be more productive, to be more impactful, you need to bring more people in the room that don't look like you. And as long as we have, you know, uh, boardrooms and executive leadership rooms where it's mostly just dudes and mostly white dudes, you're going to get the same boring ass answers to the, to the same questions. And mm -hmm. we're better than that coming out of this pandemic. Come on, we can learn from this. Absolutely. How do you aspire what the future is going to look like? Um, because... When you're telling me about these toxic masculinity workshops and there'd be men that just kind of pull you aside on the down low and say, hey, I do agree with you. I just can't publicly show you that or mm -hmm. show that in this workspace. And that's the same reason why I had my 100 Mass Men series because it was all anonymous. And yep. these men agreed with me or disagreed, but at least they felt comfortable to say so because they didn't have to show their identity. Right. So what is the next step to finally getting men to comfortably and openly support a different movement and work towards detoxifying the the workspace well when i describe it i go back to the playground analogy right of like we need to see more people taking a little risk so what i like to do in my workshops is i actually go through small steps so listen hey you know larry you know, I know you don't want to like speak up on how like toxic the leadership is, but the next time Samantha gets cut off in a meeting, can you, can you get her back? Right? Like what are mm, small that things sense. that you can actually start to do? Hey, when you notice that there's not a lot of diversity in the room, can you, even though you're a white guy, can you question and be like, shouldn't we have, you know, Samantha and Sarah and, and, you know, Rick, you know, who is, you know, if we're, if we're trying to uh, market to people of color, why are people of color not in the room? Like small mm -hmm. suggestions like that, small things you can do or help, you know, Samantha or, or, or Rick like document toxicity. Like, okay, I'm going to help you document it. I won't be able to step up myself, but I can help you document it. And then we, you know, I can go to HR with you on the low, like what, finding out what they're willing to do, the small steps that they're willing to do. Because I think a lot of times we feel as if we need to be like major activists in this. And a lot of people are not. People, mm -hmm. A lot of people are in the middle. But they know that something's wrong, right? They may not know what's wrong, but they're like, I just don't, it could be so much more fun. Work could be so much more fun if we just address this. Can we address this so that we can, you know, actually feel more connected to one another? You know, especially if I'm going to be here yeah. 2,000 to 2,500 hours a year. Can we figure this out? Yeah, I love that. The baby steps. I think you're right. Most people just immediately think like, oh, man, I have to be an activist and attend all the things and right. vouch for these this whole group of people that I personally don't know how to relate to. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? It's like, of course, you're not going to have the same experiences as these other people. And I think that's mainly the, the reason for the rejection it's kind of like well i can just stay here in my safe place and and not step over there and i think there's that discomfort it's like oh no if i make a commotion then now eyes are on me too which means it could get worse for me i could become one of them i could be struggling like them and i don't want to do that so it's i'd rather true. just be cool it's true but also think about your values and what has happening when you're playing cool right because you know a certain part of your soul is just disappearing each each day that you play it cool. And you know mm -hmm. you don't want that. You know you don't want that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, I want to wrap up with one last question for you. Because this series is about learning how to live, what is one way that you have learned how to live? 
Ooh. Okay, so follow me here because I'm going to get a bit okay. nerdy. Right? Okay, so you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of people don't realize he stole it. He stole it from the Blackfoot Nation. It was a Blackfoot tribe in Canada. Wow. And he misinterpreted it. In many ways, it's just like, or it's, it's not whole, right? So he took their idea and made it into a very Eurocentric, capitalistic sort of way, right? So Maslow hierarchy of needs, you know, physiological needs, and you keep going up all the way up until self-actualization. Well, actually, Blackfoot nation's hierarchy of needs, and look it up yourself to see this, it's not a triangle. It's a teepee, right? So it's in many ways, it's like circular. And at the bottom is self-actualization. It's the most mm-hmm. basic thing. Who am I? How am I showing up to the world? And how do I want to contribute to the world, right? After self-actualization, what's in the middle is community actualization. It's this idea of how do we show up as a community? How do we watch out for one another? You know, in the Blackfoot tribe, they talk about how poverty doesn't exist because you would never have anyone suffer. You would all suffer together. You would all benefit together, right? And when you think of like certain villages, you know, when someone is depressed, they just don't take medicine. The village will come to that person and be like, what do you need? Oh, okay, you need a plow in order to field. Oh, you need someone to watch your kids. The community will look out for one another. So we're all looking out for one another together. That's community actualization. And then the thing at the top is cultural perpetuity, which is so fascinating because what it means is breath of life. So what it means is by yourself, you're not that important, right? Your life, you live 80 to 100 years whatever. But so in one way, you're insignificant, but in another way, you are the link between your ancestors and your descendants. You are the breath of life. You get to choose what your ancestors did and bring whatever you want to your descendants, whether that's historical traumas, whether that's their successes, whether all the lessons that they've learned. So you are like the most important link. And when you see your life in that way, when you see it in a much more holistic way, you don't have your quarter life or your midlife crisis because you realize you're part of something so much bigger than you. And that is the way in which, and I don't always do this a really good job of this, but I always have to realize like, I'm just helping to build the cathedral. I'm not gonna see it at the end. Maybe I won't see the end of like toxic masculinity, but I'm going to add some bricks on the way to it getting built, you know? And when we're able to let go of that and still contribute and contribute from like a really um, compassionate, empathetic and shared humanity space, you just feel more connected like to the world. And that's, that is how I try to live. That's beautiful. I'm imagining as you were telling me the story of like, everyone has their own brick, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's decorated the way that is your personality Mm -hmm. and everyone puts their brick on the wall. And if your brick isn't there, the wall can't be built. You know what I mean? So just as much as you're just a brick, it's still an integral part of the entire wall, you know? So it's kind of realizing that you are and everything is the same part, you know, like every contribution is what it needs to be. Yeah. And it sounds corny that, oh, we're like, oh, we're all one, but like, yeah, Yeah. in many ways we are like, so why are we not spending, and this is all of my work. Why are we not spending more time really tapping back into that shared humanity so that we can see each other for the first time? Yeah. And honestly, like I was surprised at how much my conversations with these men, like totally random people that I've never met before, this was the first time that they felt seen to a stranger, you know, that was asking them random questions on a podcast and they won't even be recognized for it, you know? And that was like the biggest thing that they've ever had, you know? So it just shows how much we're lacking in that space. I agree. I agree completely. Yeah. Woo! This was awesome. I know this has been such a great chat. Is there anything you wanted to add about anything that you do or anything that's coming up for you? Yeah, I'm about to launch a podcast with my friend Dimple Dabalia called What Would Ted Lasso Do? 
uh, where we talk about Ted Lasso through the lens of positive psychology and leadership development. But really, we just love Ted Lasso. Okay. And we're just like, and he's, talk about like um, a healthy masculine man, right? That's able to like mm. tap into his vulnerability. Like that is the type of leadership that I'm advocating going forward. So yes, check that out. What would Ted Lasso do? Um, and yeah, if you want to know other information about me, my handle is Jeff Harry Plays, J-E-F-F-H-A-R-R-Y-P-L-A-Y-S. That's where I make all my nerdy videos. And if you want to <laughs> cause mischief in your workplace and address a lot of this toxicity, then just go to rediscoveryourplay.com and click on the let's play button and we can figure out how to, we can play together. Woohoo. Are we having fun yet? I learned so much from this conversation, but mainly what I took away from this is that it's not our fault that we don't know how to play. We have been looking for happiness in all the wrong places when we ourselves are already the most fun. If you like this episode, make sure to leave a review, say hi to Jeff, and subscribe to the Miss Amanda Chen Show podcast. If you've listened this far, here's a little teaser for next week's episode. If you thought it was difficult to learn how to play, how about learning how to live without alcohol? Can you still have fun? Find out next week. Ciao.